Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, and this morning we come to verses 12 through 19, appropriately on Palm Sunday, the account of the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 12, and I'll begin reading in verse 12, reading through verse 19. Please hear the word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. My wife has been reading about philosophers lately. She's gotten on a kick about philosophers, reading about philosophers, and I've been enjoying listening to her ruminations as she uh, thinks about the things she's been reading. And yesterday, we were sitting in a living room, and, and she was reading a website and was going through the material on the website and talking about d different aspects of philosophy, and suddenly came to the realization and said out loud, of course, I didn't know all this was going on in her head, but she said out loud, just out of the blue, oh my, he's a monarchist. Somebody who believes in monarchy. Well, in God's providence, I've been thinking about that a lot this week. And so I said to her, so am I. I, too, am a monarchist. She was a little put off by that at first. It's not the way that we Americans tend to think. We've had a pretty negative view of monarchy ever since we rejected King George and established our country in 1776. Matter of fact, really around the world since then, monarchy has been greatly out of favor. As the English historian Lord Acton once said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we've seen that play out in nation after nation, kingdom after kingdom, and we're kind of fed up with monarchy again, kingship. Democracy seems to be the best thing going, and I think we're rightfully proud of the system of government that we've established. But I think that what we're finding out, that as the culture within our country changes, as people change, we're finding out that democracy can be just as bad of a system of government as a monarchy if the majority that rules are corrupt. The tyranny of the majority, a corrupt majority, is just as bad as the tyranny of a corrupt king or monarch. Bill Bonas reminded me after the morning service of that great quote from Winston Churchill, 
Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. And that is the reality of government. Matter of fact, we live in an age where we're just cynical about government in general. But democracy has worked very well up until now because democracy in our government was designed by people who, whether they were really Christians or not, don't have any desire to get into that debate, they at least, we can agree, had a biblical, generally speaking, a biblical worldview with some flaws here and there, but they had a biblical worldview. And the one thing that they did believe, for we're sure of, is that men are sinners. Matter of fact, most of them believed in the Reformation doctrine of the depravity, the total depravity of man. And so they came up with democracy as a system of government with checks and balances against sin, against corruption. But it's interesting that when God designed and established a government, he didn't establish a democracy. He established a monarchy. He established a kingdom. When God's people asked for a king, he gave them a king. Now you might say, ah, but that was a judgment, he said, to give them a king. No, it wasn't a judgment because they wanted a king. If you read the text carefully, what it says is that he judged them because they rejected him as king and were not patient to wait for his king that he intended to put on the throne. And so he gave them the kind of king they wanted, and of course that turned out to be a disaster. It's kind of a theme that we will see through the rest of the history of mankind. You see, the reason that we don't want a king over us today is because we have seen so many bad ones. But what if a truly perfect, wise, good, strong king could be placed on the throne in government over you? Wouldn't you gladly receive a monarchy if that were the case? And it would be so much better than anything else. Christians are not part of a non-profit special interest organization. We are part of a kingdom. We are citizens in subjection to a king. And the more that you grow as a Christian, the more you understand that the more you apply that in your lives the more life-changing that truth is I think we say the phrase Jesus is Lord far too lightly and that's part of my intent this morning is for us to think more deeply what do we mean when we say that it's interesting that in the entire account that we have in the four gospels of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ This is the only kingly event that's recorded, what we call the triumphal entry. But what we're going to find out, it is is an observation and celebration of the kingship of Christ that points out how radically different this monarchy is in the kingdom of God. Now, to give you the context, putting it back in context where we were last week, you know that we're into the last week of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. And that Jesus has just spent the Sabbath day, and by Sabbath day I mean from Friday evening to Saturday evening, the week before the crucifixion. He spent that prior Friday evening through Saturday with this family in the little town of Bethany, which was in the outskirts of Jerusalem. 
He spent his time with the family, celebrating with them. They had a feast together. Remember, that's when Mary came and anointed him with the oil. And then as the account goes on, we know that the next morning, what we would call Sunday morning, he gets up and he begins the trip. It's only a two-mile trip from Bethany into Jerusalem. But he's coming with masses of other people. There are Jewish people coming from all over the kingdom, all over the Roman Empire, are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the great feast of the Passover. And sometimes we don't realize how big of an event this is. The uh, first century historian Josephus, Jewish historian, says that during the first century, some of the Passover feast attracted, the number he uses is 2.7 million people to come and celebrate the Passover. Now, modern scholars, as they are wont to do, are skeptical of that number. They think it's a big exaggeration, but I'm skeptical of the skeptics. I'm tired of, I'm tired of historians in the 21st century saying, no, what eyewitnesses say happened in the first century couldn't have happened. But he may have exaggerated. He wasn't infallible. I don't know. But we do know, and we can say with great confidence, at least several hundreds of thousands of worshipers were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover. So get that in your mind, how many people we're talking about. And as the accounts are put together, what you realize is that Jesus leaves Bethany two miles away from Jerusalem to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, and there's a great crowd with him to start with, not just his 12 disciples, but also many other people that had seen him call Lazarus out of the tomb and raise him from the dead by the power of his voice alone. People were so jazzed about that miracle, they all go with Jesus and they want to see what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. Here's a guy who can raise the dead. And they're beginning to believe that he's the Messiah. And so they're accompanying him to Jerusalem. And as he's proceeding to Jerusalem, what John tells the story, what you see is there's two crowds that come together. He's got a big crowd with him, but an even bigger crowd hears about him coming, and they come out streaming out of the gates of Jerusalem to meet him. And when they all come together, you've got the people from Bethany saying, you're not going to believe what Jesus just did. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're witnessing and testifying about that, and people get all excited. And I'm trying to communicate to you that this was really, you know, the the setting of of a huge groupthink, a huge, if you've ever been in the midst of a huge mob of people, It's just the enthusiasm is extremely infectious, and that's what's happening. And so this, this, then Jesus does something, and I think what I want you to first recognize is that he orchestrates what happens here. This didn't happen to him as a surprise. He actually sets it up. The other gospel accounts tell us that he told two disciples to go into a nearby village and and get a donkey, uh, actually a mother donkey and her young colt, and bring them. And when they do, they put their robes on him, on, on the small, on the colt, the foal, not the older donkey, the mother, but the, the, the colt, the unbroken one, as one of the gospel writers tells us. And Jesus rides on the colt, the young donkey, towards Jerusalem. So Jesus is the one who is setting this up. He's not only allowing a huge public display here, but he's actually setting it up, orchestrating it. And in order to understand the message that Jesus is getting across in this incident, you need to understand what happened typically in the first century, particularly in the Roman Empire, whenever a victorious king would arrive back at his capital city and come into the the walls of the city, through the main gates, to his palace, to his throne, when he's returning to a city, this is typically what happened, 
is that the people would get word that the king has won this great battle. He's gone out, they've had this big bloody battle, and he has won a great victory, and he's riding back to the capital city, and he's got all of his great armies behind him, and he's got all the captives and all the spoils that they've won in this great victory, and he's riding on the biggest, most powerful war steed, war horse that they have in the kingdom, and he's got his full glorious armor dressed to the hilt, They've got the flags, and they're coming back in great victory, and the people hear that they're coming, the armies are coming, and so they come streaming out of the city to welcome him, and they wave palm branches as, as symbols of victory, and they lay down their robes on the, on the ground as the, the king would, and the armies would ride over them to give them the full red carpet treatment. That's where we get that idea from. And they would welcome them back in this great, joyous celebration of victory. That's what people were used to when a victory had taken place. And Jesus consciously borrows on that imagery and rides into Jerusalem with these masses of people waving the palm branches, laying down their cloaks, walking in him as a victorious king. I, you know, as I talk about what it's like to be in a massive crowd like that, I don't know if you've had that experience. We don't have anything like that really in our culture. The closest thing I came up with, and if you're not a baseball fan, you won't get this, but well, maybe other sports fan will get it. But 2008, I was in Philadelphia, living in Philadelphia, and we're, the Phillies won the World Series, first time in a very long time. And Broad Street, which is the main street in Philadelphia, leads right up to City Hall. They, the, the count was, the unofficial count was, two million people filtered in from the entire region to fill Broad Street. And even my wife, who's not a baseball fan, still talks about this as being this just astounding experience of being, everybody's dressed in red, they're wear, waving their pennants, and there's this excitement that keeps flowing through the crowd. Two million people lining the streets, you know, 20 deep, people climbing up on poles and on sides of buildings to be able to see, and then the team comes down on these floats, and everybody's just so excited to see, and they're shouting and screaming and singing and chanting and it's the closest thing I've got to this. We, we've got nothing else in our culture that even comes close to this. But that's the idea. And you can sense what it might be like to be in the culture and realize the, the, the actual historical context of this or the, the time context is this is happening at the beginning of the Passover. What did the Passover celebrate? It celebrated the most important victory in the whole history of the people of God, when God did fantastic miracles, plagues, and delivered his people through a great leader like Moses, led them out from slavery and bondage and oppression under the Egyptian nation. That's what's about to be celebrated. You can understand why the Jewish leadership was nervous about how the Romans would view a public display of Jesus Christ as a victorious king like this. Imagine if the United States of America were suddenly to come under a very severe foreign oppression. Some country were to come and totally take over and put us under oppression, but yet they allowed us to still celebrate the 4th of July, Independence Day. And somebody got up on Independence Day and made a rousing speech or a big display about how wrong the oppression is or the oppressor. You could imagine how easily a revolution could get started in that context. So this is the context. This is what we're seeing. But there's one part of this picture that really stands out like a sore thumb, doesn't it? That little donkey. 
Why a donkey? You know, it's kind of like a mustache on the Mona Lisa. It just, you know, it's not only does it, not only does it not belong there, it really bothers you in that whole picture of the event. It would be similar to having the Queen of England riding into London on a scooter. I mean, it's really, that's, that's the kind of the modern parallel. But seriously, it would seem to fit better, not on Palm Sunday, but on Good Friday, wouldn't it? When the Roman soldiers beat Christ to a pulp and then put a robe of mockery on him and put a crown of thorns on him to mock the idea that he's a king, then put him on a donkey and parade him through town, then that would make sense. But Jesus chose to enter on a donkey. Well, that's really the most important part of the picture in some ways. Because the kind of kingdom that he was coming to establish in the victory that he was about to accomplish was an entirely different kind of kingdom than any kingdom that the earth had ever seen before. So why did he come on a donkey? First of all, John tells us, to fulfill prophecy. To fulfill prophecy. In verse 15, he points out that the prophet Zechariah had said that a sign of the Messiah's coming would be his arrival on a donkey. Specifically, on the foal of a donkey, Zechariah says. That's how specific this fulfillment of prophecy was. This was a sign of the appearance of the Messianic king, and Jesus knew that. He was consciously fulfilling that prophecy. But let me take you back to Zechariah 9, where that prophecy is found, and read it to you in context, because John doesn't continue with the quote Let me read, first of all, what John quotes. That's from verse 9 of Zechariah 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But it goes on to say, the rest of that vision says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. When you see the whole quote in context, you begin to see that the whole message that Jesus is communicating by alluding to that prophecy. He is coming to establish a reign, but not coming with big swords and big horses and armor to achieve some political or military victory. He's coming to establish a kingdom of peace where weapons are not needed, where armor is not needed. A kingdom of peace that would extend to the ends of the earth and a kingdom that would be established through the shedding of the blood of the covenant. And that is one of the richest phrases in all of scripture, that this deliverance of God's people that was necessary was brought about because the blood of the covenant would ultimately and finally and once for all be shed. And that would inaugurate a kingdom of peace that would spread You see, the crowds, both the crowds from Bethany and the crowds from Jerusalem and even the 12 disciples of Jesus himself didn't grasp that. Yes, they got the fact that he was acting like the Messiah 
And some of them were professing him to be the Messiah, the Messianic king who would usher in the kingdom of God. But John makes it clear in verse 16, look at what he says. At first, his disciples, he's not talking about the massive crowds, he's talking about his 12 disciples. His disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. You see, they did, they had already begun to see him as the Messiah, but they didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. And they didn't understand the necessity of the shedding of the blood of the covenant to establish the kingdom. And so they were still largely in the dark about the meaning of what Jesus was doing. In chapters 14 and 16, which we'll get to in a number of weeks, Jesus will say that the Holy Spirit has to come first. The Holy Spirit would have to open their eyes to see why the kingdom had to be established in the way that it was. So what's the point? What does the donkey teach us about the kingdom? Well, the nature of his kingdom is personified in what John quotes are actually from Zechariah where he says that the king would come humble and mounted on a donkey. This is a meek king. This is a king who's establishing an upside-down kingdom in terms of this world. A kingdom where the first is last and where the least is greatest. That's what the donkey says in a loud voice. Matter of fact, it's kind of interesting to look at how Jesus is processing what's happening around him. Even though he orchestrates this and he knows what's coming, you tend to wonder, well, what does he think of all these people praising him without really understanding what he's communicating? Well, Luke's account actually tells us. And sometimes I I think Christians don't connect the two passages. But in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, it's in the context of the triumphal entry that Luke tells us this. Let me take you over to Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. And when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's what was going through the mind of Christ while they were shouting his praises and proclaiming him Messiah. He was weeping. And he was looking ahead realizing that their praise was insincere and that they would ultimately reject him. And that because they ultimately rejected him as the Messiah, the king that God had sent, they would come under severe judgment and in 70 AD, the Roman Empire would come and wipe out Jerusalem and decimate the people. And that was an act of God's judgment for their rejection. He knew their hearts weren't in their praise. He knew that they were praising a different Messiah Not the Messiah of the scriptures, not the Messiah of the Old Testament, but the Messiah of their own imagination. They would be judged because they didn't know the time of their visitation. They didn't understand what the triumphal entry meant. And this response that we see is not real saving faith. You know, the evidence for that would become very quickly, as we know, as the next few days that are coming up. Because it's only days later that many of those same people are shouting and raising their fist and saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. 
I still think that on Palm Sundays and Easter Sundays, Jesus still weeps when he hears the praises of people who praise him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him, and they're really worshiping a Jesus of the culture or a Jesus of their tradition or a Jesus of their fondest desires and wishes, but not the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus of prophecy, the Jesus of the, of the, that the apostles would come to teach later. So who are you following is a good question for all of us to ask on a Palm Sunday. What is our understanding of the Messiah and what informs it? The only Jesus that can help you, the only Jesus that can save you is the Jesus of the scriptures. But his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And what the the apostles would later spell out for us is that that kingdom does not grow by swords, doesn't grow by coercion, It grows by the use of spiritual weapons. Jesus alluded to this in John 18 when he stood before Pilate. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Paul explains what he means by that in terms of the growth of the kingdom by saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, they're not of this world, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. They take captive every thought to obey Christ. That's how the kingdom grows. It grows by the Holy Spirit going before us and the word of God and particularly the word of the gospel being used as the sword of the Spirit to penetrate the hearts of sinners, to bring about inner change, heart transformation. And that's how the kingdom grows from person to person to every land on earth. The conquest of Christ's kingdom that he inaugurated when he went to the cross was a kingdom of peace spreading to the four corners of the earth. The gospel message transforming hearts so that men don't, aren't forced into submission to Christ, but they are changed so that they lovingly, adoringly, joyfully submit to Christ as Lord. That's what the kingdom looks like. And so it's not just a different kind of kingdom, it's a different kind of victory. The song of the crowd comes from Psalm 118. This is a Psalm 118 is one of the psalms they sang at every Passover every year. But these crowds, they borrow this familiar psalm to sing it as as praise to Christ as Messiah, and that's entirely appropriate. We read earlier some of the context. I mean, in, in John, he only quotes just a couple of phrases from Psalm 118, but in context, let me remind you again of what it says. I'll begin in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Listen to this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's the context of the praises that they sang. Talking about The stone that God would build his kingdom upon, which would become the cornerstone, was rejected. And that's a prophecy that is quoted again and again in the New Testament of the work of Christ and what he did on the cross. It's after having said that that the next verse says, save us, or Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew, the word Hosanna. 
Save us. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They just didn't understand what they were singing. Save us. Those people were singing it. Hosanna, save us. But what were they asking for salvation from? They were saying, save us from the Romans. Save us from oppression. Save us from taxation. Save us from abuse. Save us from poverty. Save us from sickness. Save us from hunger. That's what they meant when they said save us. Back in 1928, Herbert Hoover was elected president of the United States of America. His campaign slogan in that winning campaign was a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. And so it's been really for the last hundred years of ways that people win elections in our increasingly corrupt nation, appealing to that desire that those people had on that day, that kind of salvation that they wanted, salvation from difficulty, salvation to an easy and comfortable life that's so I can go do my will the way I want to do it. I can live my life the way I want to live it. But when the angel was sent to announce the coming, the birth of Jesus Christ, this is what the angel said. You are to give him the name Jesus, which means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. Any other blessing you receive, could receive from God is meaningless unless you are first saved from your sins. Jesus wasn't trying to start a movement or a revolution and bring about military or political victory. That wasn't what he was doing. He knew when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling that prophecy, that the response of the crowd and his actions would lead to the Jewish leadership putting him ultimately on the cross. And that's what he came to do. He came to shed the blood of the covenant that would deliver his people. So when you say, save me, when you sing Hosanna, what are you asking for? What kind of salvation are you looking for from Jesus the Messiah? He came to save us from our sins. He came to save us from a self-centered kingdom that's materialistic and greedy and corrupt. And in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, Paul calls upon us to live in light of that sacrifice for us. He begin, beginning in verse 4, he says in Philippians 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Jesus is your Lord, then you live in a monarchy, you live under his complete authority. Your king has come, you are in his kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom of peace that spreads by the gospel. The life-transforming power of the word of God and the spirit. 
And in the words of the Pharisees, which is another one of John's kind of unintentional prophecies, in verse 19, they said when they saw what was happening, look, the world has gone after him. When you say Jesus is Lord, don't say it lightly. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is Jesus is my sovereign king. Jesus has absolute authority over every part of my life. There is not a a centimeter of your life that he doesn't reign over. He is the Lord and King of your sex life, your education, your thought life, your words, your career, your relationships. He is Lord. We tend to think about, yeah, I would serve a perfect king. Give me a perfect king. I would gladly serve a perfect king, even as an American in a great democracy. I would serve a perfect king, but what's your view of a perfect king? Would a perfect king be someone who takes away all of your needs and makes you really comfortable and wealthy and frees you up to do whatever you want to do in life? Is that the kind of king that you want to serve? That's not Christ. That's not the Messiah that was promised. It's a Messiah who delivers you from that selfish, self-centered way of living into a God-centered way of living where the fullness of covenant blessings are found because the covenant blood has been shed. Jesus is coming again, soon maybe. Every eye will see him, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord, whether willingly or by necessity. But I just want to close by giving you one last visual image. Remember what I said a triumphal entry in the world's kingdoms would have looked like? And how Jesus kind of consciously turned that on its head by riding in on a donkey? Let me give you one more vision. I don't want to leave you with that vision because that salvation has already been accomplished. Here's what's coming. This is from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has many, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the next triumphal entry to come. And I think Christians misunderstand because when Paul says that we're caught up in the air to meet him on that day, they talk about us being transported somewhere else. But that's not really what the scriptures are promising there. That's the imagery of the triumphal entry. It's the people from the city coming out to meet their victorious king, to celebrate, to worship, and to accompany him back to his eternal throne. That's the imagery that when Christ comes again, we are caught up to meet him in the air, and we shout our hosannas, and we wave our palm branches, and lay down our robes, and submit to him, because he's coming to bring complete salvation, complete deliverance to establish his eternal kingdom where he will serve perfectly over a perfect people in a perfect universe forever. That's our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise of the return of Christ. 
We have already experienced your grace. We have already understood that he is king, he is Lord, and we are already citizens in his kingdom. But Lord, we still labor under the sins of our culture, the sins of others around us, and most of all, the sins that are still deeply embedded within us. Have mercy upon us. Forgive us, Lord. Strengthen us. Teach us that his ways are the best ways and that his kingdom is what we live for. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.